you have a copy of the Bible, you can go eight. We're going to attempt to finish that chapter this morning. I will start midway through it and try to make it to the end of it. But for you and your generosity to the mission of our church, uh, both here locally and internationally, uh, and uh, we are doing well uh, financially. We could always use more gifts to be able to send more people and to minister in more ways. But thank you for your generosity now and in the future. Uh, if you would like to ever make contributions on Sundays, you'd be welcome to at the offering boxes in the back. But you can also give online, you can mail checks in, things like that. But it is not lost on me, and I knew it had been a few weeks since I said thank you to that, but it's not lost on me that our mission as a church is funded by our collective generosity. The Spirit does the work, but the gifts that he's given to us as we pull those together, they're what enable people to be freed up, to go into the community here to minister, to go into the, the reaches of the earth uh, to minister. So thank you for your generosity. Uh, it is honoring to the Lord. All right. Uh, there are many things. I, I've lived uh, several decades now of life, and there are many things even in my lifetime that have either become obsolete or that are becoming obsolete. And some of you who've been alive longer than me, you could probably have a longer list than what I'm about to share. Uh, but there's many things that since I was a boy and have grown up uh, that I've seen kind of go by the wayside. They're either not used at all anymore or they're used very sparingly. Uh, things like this. I just made a short list as I was thinking about these. I think of things like a phone booth. Like I remember going into those when I was a kid. You almost never see those anywhere any longer. I remember in my neighborhood we had, I don't know if this was a common thing, but we had a neighborhood mailbox. There was like a freestanding mailbox in our, our neighborhood that people could drop mail into. I see those never anymore. Uh, when I was young, we would play cassette tapes. Uh, I don't see cassette tapes anymore. Uh, what we, I was in middle school. We had dial-up internet, the glories of that, and its slowness. I, I, I'm glad I don't hear that little grinding sound anymore of dial-up internet. I remember a thing when we would go to the store as kids, and our, our parents would need to pay with a card. Uh, they would have this little slider with carbon paper underneath it to make duplicates and triplicates. We don't need that anymore. We just do things digitally. Uh, fax machines, I remember those were really common when I was younger. I see those almost never anymore. I remember my dad would have a Rolodex on his desk of contacts. Now those are just all on his phone. Uh, I remember phone books that were massive that we'd use as like large paperweights for different things. Now you just look up uh, numbers online. There's all sorts of things. You could probably add a ton to that list of just things that we used to use maybe even used to use a lot, but now they're obsolete or they are going that way of becoming obsolete. And that can be hard. Like when we're used to certain things, when we've gotten accustomed to certain places or technology or pieces of things around our house that we use, when those things have been around a long time and they slowly start to become obsolete, that can be challenging. It may be exciting to get a new technology, but it's hard to let go of old. It's hard to uh, free our hands of those things. And it, it, if it's hard for us to do that with man-made things, like fashion styles, or technology, if it's hard for us to do that with man-made things, things we've created, how much harder is it for us internally when there is something that is God-made, something that God himself gave to his people, and then God pulls it back. God himself makes it obsolete and gives something new. 
That would be incredibly hard, even taking God at his word that here's this new thing that I'm giving you. It's hard to let go of the old. And that's what we see addressed again and again in the book of Hebrews, and it's going to be directly confronted in today's text. Uh, the book of Hebrews, if you've been with us, I repeat this most Sundays, but so don't check out if you've heard this, but the context of the book of Hebrews is that this was written to early Christians within decades of when Jesus had been raised and ascended to heaven, it was written to early Christians who were Jewish by ethnicity, thus the name of the book. Uh, and what they were struggling with, what they were wrestling with, was this very thing, that God had given his people this God-made gift of the Old Covenant. He had given them this way of relating to him and of operating with him that had been in operation for centuries upon centuries upon centuries but now they're living in this exciting time where this Messiah has finally come. Uh, this God-man has come and lived and died upon the cross for his people, been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And he has started this new covenant, this new way of God relating with his people. But what these people who are receiving this letter are struggling with is how do we live in that tension of we were so familiar with the old covenant, we were so familiar with those patterns, both as an individual and as a collective people. Now that God has given us this new covenant, what do we do with that? And they were tempted to go back to it. As, as opposition arose to their new Christianity and then practicing following Christ, as opposition rose to them, they were tempted to go back to that old familiar, uh, old covenant that God had given to them. And the author, in all sorts of ways, is trying to just chip away at that temptation and say, do not go back. Don't go back to the old covenant. Don't go back to the old priests. Don't go back to the old sacrifices. Stand squarely in this new covenant that God has given to you. But the allure of the old covenant was still there. And they're wrestling with it, trying to deal with that temptation to go back to the old ways. And so what we're about to read in Hebrews chapter 8 is the author of Hebrews, we don't know who he was, but another attempt for him to address this temptation in their hearts and souls and lives to go back to the old. And the way he's going to do it in today's text is he's going to use a very long quotation from the book of Jeremiah. Other than the first verse or two that I'm going to read and the last verse that I'm going to read, all of this text is going to be a long quotation from the book of Jeremiah. It's actually the longest in the entire New Testament. This is the longest quotation of an Old Testament text in the whole of the New Testament. And he's going to take them back to the prophet of Jeremiah, and he's going to do it for a very particular reason. It's because he wants to take these Jewish Christians back to the very texts of their scriptures, Back to the prophet Jeremiah, this man they would have revered and believed to be a prophet of God. He is going to take them there to Jeremiah's words to say, God himself has said this new covenant would come. Like this isn't just a creation of men. This isn't a creation of early followers of Jesus. God himself had said hundreds of years before, I'm going to establish a new covenant with you. And so he wants them to see that, that this isn't just him saying it, hey, stick with the new covenant but God himself has said it long ago and is continuing to say it to them today. There is a new covenant that I've established with you through the person of Jesus. And so I'm going to read this for us. I'm actually going to start at verse 6, even though I preached a little bit from that verse last Sunday. I'm going to start at verse 6 to kind of get a running start. And then uh, we'll read all the way through the end of the chapter down through verse 13. So follow along in your copy of the scripture. So whoever wrote the book of Hebrews continues under the inspiration of the Spirit and wrote this. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry 
that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. I want to try to explain this text under three headings this morning, all about the new covenant, what it was, what it was like, uh, how God brought it about. And so I want to begin from this text by establishing what I think the author was trying to establish. First, a very simple point, that the new covenant was needed. Uh, The new covenant was needed. Now, you know from experience, just like I do, that because something is new doesn't necessarily mean that it is better right? Uh, There are some old appliances that I trust a lot more than new appliances, things that were just built better, uh, that last longer. So something being new doesn't mean that it's necessarily better. But the experience of God's people under what we now would call the old covenant uh, was there was no denying that that covenant, that that way of God relating to his people Uh, that he had established back at Mount Sinai through Moses. There was no question that that way of dealing, that covenant, was not effective. Like it wasn't actually bringing about a reconciliation of God and his people. It wasn't actually creating people who actually loved the Lord and obeyed him. It, It was not producing that. And so from the centuries of the experience of God's people, there was this, this reality that a new covenant was needed. This old one had had centuries. It had been in practice. It had been in place for centuries. And it was not affecting actual change. And so the, the author, uh, he, he's describing, he contrasts, you'll notice again and again in this text, the old covenant and the new covenant, or the first covenant and the second covenant. Just to be clear, when he's talking about the first covenant or the old covenant, because there's a lot of covenants in the Old Testament, the one he's talking about that he's critiquing, that he's saying was weak and powerless, was the covenant that God had established with his people at Mount Sinai. Uh, When God, he even says, right, in verse 9, as he's describing this old covenant, he says it was when uh, God had made made with their fathers on the day he took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That was the miraculous rescue through the parting of the Red Sea, and then God met them at Mount Sinai, and God established this covenant with them, uh, this law system that he gave to them to follow. 
But the author knows and he makes very clear that that covenant was not faultless. Like it was not without fault, right? Look at verse 7. He said, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So he's just saying what would have been plainly obvious to everyone, including the people who received this letter. That covenant had faults. Like there, there was a problem with it. There was a weakness in it. It wasn't actually producing change, and it had not for centuries. And so what was the fault with it? What was the problem with it? Like why was a new covenant needed? You can see that the author here, uh, quoting Jeremiah, the primary thing he finds fault with was not necessarily the laws themselves, but was the people. Right? The people were the ones who fault was found with. Right, Look at the start of verse 8, and I know there's translation differences in some versions, but I believe this is the accurate translation of this. Verse 8, it says that God finds fault with them when he says, and then he quotes Jeremiah 31 about this new covenant, but God found fault with the people they were the ones who the problem lied squarely with, was with the Israelites themselves, right? So he finds, verse 8 says he finds fault with them, and then he makes that more explicit in verse 9. In this quotation from Jeremiah 31, he says in the, the second part of that verse, he says, They did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. They didn't continue in his covenant. God established it with them. God was glad to continue in the covenant with them. But the fault laid with them. They refused to actually follow the stipulations of the covenant. They refused to actually trust God and live as he called them to live. And so the fault lied with them. They were the ones who had the problem. They were the ones who were preventing the realities from actually coming to be that God intended, right? They didn't continue in his covenant. And one thing to note, this long quotation that uh, the author of Hebrews cites from Jeremiah, one thing to note, if you did not know this, is to remember who Jeremiah was writing this to, right? Jeremiah wasn't just writing this in a vacuum, like randomly on some piece of paper just for him to, to look at. He was writing it in his day to Israelites who were in exile. That's who he was writing it to. Because the problem with that old covenant had gotten so severe that at long last, during Jeremiah's lifetime, God had finally said, enough. Like, we have established this covenant. You all keep disobeying. I am sending enemies to overrun you and send you out of my land. And Jeremiah is writing to them. These people who are living in exile, who have no doubt in their minds because of where they lay their head at night and where they put their feet on the ground in exile, they know that old covenant was not working. And the problem's with us. Like we have disobeyed and disobeyed and disobeyed and disobeyed. That old covenant was not working. And this quotation from Jeremiah where he says that the generation when he brought them out of the hand, by hand out of the land of Egypt that they didn't continue. The problem was not just that generation, right? The generation that ended up having to die in the wilderness. It was every generation. Every single generation that came along refused to, dis refused to obey God, refused to keep that old covenant. The fault lay with them. And so, but note this, eventually they did come back to the land, 
God graciously brought all of his people back to the land of Israel. He brought them back, and guess what? That didn't fix anything either. Like the old covenant was still there when they came back and they rebuilt the temple. The same problems existed because the same problem existed inside the people. That there was a heart that refused to obey God. The fault lay with them. He has said this, the author has a couple times already, even back in chapter 7, verse 11. He had said that perfection wasn't attainable through the work of the priests, through that old covenant. Perfection wasn't attainable through it. He said in verse 19 of chapter 7, the beginning of it, he said the law, that covenant, made nothing perfect. It could not do it. Like that, that law, that system could not affect perfection in God's people. Uh, it could not produce it. And so this new covenant was desperately needed, and every Israelite would have known it, uh, that, that this new, there is a new covenant needed. What we have right now is not working in the days of Jeremiah. They needed God to graciously establish a new covenant with them. And grateful, great, graciously, uh, thankfully, God does just that. Right? Through the prophet Jeremiah, God had spoken hundreds of years before this letter was written. God had spoken through Jeremiah and said, hey, I am going to establish a new covenant with you. Like this old covenant is not affecting change. I am going to establish a new covenant with you. And so the second heading I want you to see from this text is the simple point that the new covenant was promised. It was needed, but then it was promised by God himself. Uh, he had, through the prophet Jeremiah, spoken very explicitly saying, I am going to establish a new covenant with you, right? So look at verse 8, uh, where the author of Hebrews starts this quotation from Jeremiah. He picks it up right at this point where God is saying through Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, that is very straightforward, right? God, there's no, uh, no uh, confusion with that. Jeremiah puts on the, 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 the mouth, so to speak, of God, these very words that God had given to him, I am going to establish a new covenant with my people. I am going to do that. This is the only time, uh, this quotation is the only time in the entirety of the Old Testament where this phrase, new covenant, is used. It's alluded to other places, but in black and white verbatim, Jeremiah is saying God is going to establish eventually. He didn't know when it would be, but someday God himself is going to establish a new covenant with his people. It's there, black and white, and the author of Hebrews points them back to it, to the text of the old covenant itself and some of the words of their prophet to see that God had said he would send a new covenant. And it's fascinating as you read this quotation from Jeremiah of what this covenant was going to be like, uh, to see that there's some things about this new covenant God was going to establish that would be similar to the old covenant, but even more you're going to see that there's things that are going to be different and better and more glorious about this new covenant that God is going to establish. I want to quickly show you a few things that are similar, what this new covenant would be like, and then a few things that are, are different, praise God, of the new covenant from the old. So first, a couple of things that were going to be similar in this new covenant that God was going to establish someday. One, a wonderful thing, is that this new covenant, just like the old, was going to be initiated by God himself. 
It wasn't something that human beings were going to like come up with a plan and be like, God, here, here's our offer to you. We're going to, this is, a, is this an okay way to relate to you? Like we've come up with this good arrangement. Would you agree to this um, plan of how we can relate? That is not how covenants between God and his people work. They are God's idea. They are God initiated. You read this text of Jeremiah that he quotes. How many times does God say, I will do this. I will do this. I will establish it. I will relate this way to you. You see it again and again and again. God is going to be the one who initiates this new covenant. His people would not. They would only respond to it. But God is going to be the initiator of it. And then one other similarity that I love, and we could easily miss it, is if you look uh, at verse 10. Look at verse 10. This is where he's still quoting from Jeremiah. The very end, the last two lines of Jeremiah's uh, words there in verse 10. He says, he puts on the lips of God, God saying in this new covenant, I will be their God and they shall be my people. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because it appears in the Bible a lot. And this wasn't the first time that it had appeared. God had actually pretty much verbatim said that exact thing to Moses back in Exodus 6. When he's getting ready to prepare his people to be freed from slavery in Egypt, he had said this very thing that, hey, my people are going to be mine and I will be their God. Like I'm going to rescue them and there's going to be this special relationship that I develop again with them. You see that language way back at the time of the Exodus when God was establishing that first covenant, him saying, I'll be your God, you be my people. And he's saying this with the new covenant, when he establishes this new covenant, there's this same desire, there's this same aim for God to be one with his people. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. That phrase you see tons throughout the scriptures, even up through Revelation 21. At the establishment of new creation, there's God being with his people, them being with him. This is a phrase that runs through all the covenants that we see, even into eternity. So there's some similarities that's going to be initiated by God. It's going to have the same end goal of seeing God be the God of his people and then be his people in return. But the notes of this text are primarily not on what's going to be the same about the new covenant, but about what is going to be different, what's going to be better about this new covenant, right? So if you look at the start of verse 9, God had just said, I'm going to establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then the start of verse 9, note how he starts it. He says, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Like there's going to be something or some things fundamentally different about this new covenant. It's not just going to be kind of like a version 2.0 of the old covenant. It's going to be entirely new. Uh, there's going to be new dimensions to it, new promises that are part of it. And God wanted them to know this is going to be dramatically different from the covenant that I established at Mount Sinai. So a few things that you can see that are different, that are better with this new covenant that are alluded to even in this text. And this all stems from back in, if you notice in verse 6 that I read to help us kind of get a running start when it's talking about this new covenant that Jesus mediates. Did you notice that verse ended by saying the new covenant is enacted on better promises? I think when he quotes Jeremiah 31 here, he's fleshing out what some of those better promises were going to be, like what, what they are. And so I want to point out a few of them from this quotation uh, from Jeremiah. The first one that's going to be different about this new covenant that God was going to someday establish was that the law of God was going to be placed within his people. 
Like the law of God was going to actually be placed inside of God's people. In the old covenant, the law was literally in a box, right? God had written it on stone. Uh, they had recorded it, yes, and passed it down orally. And they tried to, in some sense, write it on their hearts just by memorizing it. But the physical commands of God were in a box. The Ark of the Covenant inside the tabernacle, eventually inside the temple. But God says in verse 10, he says that he, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. He was not doing that in abundance in the old covenant, but he's saying with this new covenant, that is what I'm going to do. My law is not going to anymore just be outside of my people that they kind of have to like muster up the willpower to say, I know the law's there, I've got to do it. But he's going to actually put it inside them. He is going to write it on their hearts. He is going to put it in their minds. That is going to be a fundamental difference. And this is important for us to note, even as people who live today, that this is a fundamental change that needs to take place in every human being. What people need, what human beings need, you and me included, is not just some law outside of ourselves to tell us what to do when we don't want to do it. Like to have an unchanged heart trying to follow a good law of God is not what we were made for. But we, we need to have actually from within ourselves a change affected in us where we no longer want to run after sin, but we want to run after God himself. And that is something we cannot do to ourselves. That is something you cannot do to your son and daughter. That is something you cannot bring about in your neighbor or your coworker in the next cubicle. God has to change their hearts. Like we are not just giving them a law to follow on the outside, but we are trying to give them a message that will actually change them from the inside out. And God is the only one that can do that. And he is saying in this new covenant, that is what I'm going to do. Like I am actually going to take my law and I'm going to change people. I'm going to put it on their heart. I'm going to change them from the inside out. That is a fundamental difference that was going to become true in the new covenant. That was promise number one that's different, that's better. The second one is still in that same verse, verse 10, in the the end verses there, those last two lines, where he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is a a, a wonderful thing for us to see. And actually, I'm going to jump down to verse 11 as well, because this is an important note. Because he says, in this new covenant people, he says, they're not going to teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. Hear this, this is a, a key difference in the new covenant. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So if you combine the end of verse 10 and into verse 11, the second promise that's better of this new covenant is that the entire covenant people of God, all of them, will know God personally. In this new covenant dealings of God, every person who's part of that covenant will know God personally, right? Uh, so in the old covenant, uh, as you think back to that law that was given by God at Mount Sinai, and then as they tried to live that out in their community as Israelites, it was, I've heard other people use this phrase, it's not mine, but it was a mixed bag of people who would actually know God, who would actually love him and serve him, and people who wouldn't. Just because you were ethnically Israelite didn't mean that you actually loved God and that you were glad to be a part of the people of God. It was a very mixed bag of people who really did trust Yahweh and people who did not. That covenant was made up, it was mixed. There, there was a mixed nature to it of faith and, and following after God. But he's saying in this covenant, in this new covenant, 
every single person who's part of it will know me. It's not going to be a mixed bag any longer. It's, it's going to be that every single person will know me. And, and not just in like a sense, when he talks about they shall all know me, it's not just like this, oh, I'm familiar with him. Like, yeah, I, I know of God. But the, this knowledge of him that is personal, that is deep, that is trusting toward him. He's saying all the people in this new covenant will know me that way every single one of them. And just as an aside, a quick aside, because uh, we have been talking about baptism in our church a lot, and we, the last couple of weeks, I'm not going to explain all of why. If you know, you know. If you don't, it's okay. Um, but we've been talking about baptism and infant baptism versus believer's baptism. I just wanted to note squarely from this text, this text is a huge part of why we baptize only believers, and that may not connect in your mind, uh, but in this new covenant people of God, that, that are united with Jesus, our understanding from this text would be that every single person who's part of that covenant trusts God already. Like, not that someday they will, not that someday down the road they will, but we think if you are a part of the people of God, you know him already. You don't need a parent to tell you know him. You don't need a pastor to tell you know God because you already know him. And so the new covenant people of God, as we would understand it, are people of faith, right? And so we baptize people who have faith because baptism is a sign of entering that new covenant people of God. So that's a quick aside, but I wanted to make sure to note that from this text because it's important even in the present conversation of our church. But there's a glorious thing where he says in verses 10 and 11, the entire covenant people of God will know me deeply, will know me personally. It's not gonna be some do and some others, but they will all know me. But the best promise, the best new promise of this quotation and of the new covenant is found in verse 12. This is where the, 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 it's the core issue that is going to be different with the new covenant people of God than the old covenant people of God. And you probably note in verse 12, it starts with the word for, right? He's just been making these promises like, hey, I'm going to change people from the inside out. And I'm going to, all of them are going to actually know me personally, not just be around me, but know me. The way those things can be true is because of, for, what he says in verse 12. What's going to be different in this even more core way. And what he says is going to be different, the most glorious different thing in the new covenant is I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That is the best promise of this whole text. That is the core promise of the new covenant that God was going to someday establish and that he has now established was this. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The old covenant did nothing to actually deal with people's sin. It did nothing. At best, it reminded them of their sin, right? At best, like when they would have to make sacrifices again and again and have to visit their priest again and again, whether it was a prescribed or a reactionary thing, when they'd have to go outside the camp or do all these different things and, and rituals, at best, it was a reminder to them of their guilt, a reminder to them, I need forgiveness. He needs forgiveness. She needs forgiveness. We need forgiveness. But it did nothing. All the rituals, all those works, a priest did absolutely nothing to actually deal with their sins. 
to actually atone for them, to actually bring about forgiveness. It, it was this recurring cycle of remembering their sins but doing nothing about them. But this new covenant that God is saying, he's going to establish, he's saying, it's going to be different, everyone. Like, I am going to be merciful toward you in this new covenant. There's not going to be the looming threat of exile someday. I am going to show mercy to you. And this glorious thing, just in light of their sacrifice, always reminding them of their sins, he says, I will remember your sins no more. Like, you may remember them, you may feel conviction of them, but as far as how I relate to you, I am not going to remember them anymore. There's a fundamental difference and improvement with the new covenant. And I, I would note for us, though, that this new covenant does not, he doesn't say, as he's going to establish this new covenant, that my people will sin no more. Right? He says, I will remember their sins no more. Like, I, I will be merciful toward their what? Toward their iniquities. That This is the reality that iniquities will still be present in the new covenant people of God. But God is going to be merciful toward them. God is going to not remember them, not hold them over his people anymore in judgment. He is actually going to deal with their sins when this new covenant is established. And I don't know that Jeremiah knew exactly how that's going to be, but he was told by God this glorious promise, I'll remember, I'll be merciful toward their iniquities, I'll remember their sins no more. And that will only happen when this new covenant is established. So this new covenant was needed, the new covenant was promised by God through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. But the question would have been, from the time Jeremiah wrote this until around the time these people are receiving this letter, is when is that new covenant going to happen? Like, how's it going to come to be? Like, the old covenant, I mean, we knew because God met us at Mount Sinai and there's fire and, and clouds and lightning and all this stuff, loud voices coming to us, things like that. How are we going to know when this new covenant is established? When, when is it going to take place? How's it going to begin? But what this author is trying to point out to them in this text and really in this whole letter is this third simple point is that the new covenant was enacted, that it has been enacted. It's not just still out in the future to them or to us, but it has begun. This new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied has actually started. And so look back, like if you were here a couple weeks ago when we went through Hebrews chapter 7, uh, when he said in verse 22, he, he's making this argument, the author is making this argument, this new covenant has come, it's begun, and the one in charge of it, the one who guarantees it, who mediates it, is Jesus. Not some priest in Jerusalem, it is Jesus. In chapter 7, verse 22, he said that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. That's the new covenant, right? Jesus is the guarantor of it. He said in chapter 8, verse 6, which I read at the beginning of this morning's sermon, he said that Christ has obtained a ministry much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. So he's making this argument again and again. This new covenant has come. Jesus is the one it has come through. He is the one in charge of it. He's the one organizing it, mediating it, supervising it, whatever verb you want to use. And he's trying to establish this with them because he wants them to know, the author of Hebrews, I think, wants them to know, this idea that a new covenant has come now through Jesus isn't just us making this up. Like, this isn't just me or the apostles or whoever you heard the good news from. 
we didn't make this up. Like God said the new covenant was going to come, but guess who himself said he was going to start this new covenant? Jesus. Like, if you don't agree with me, take it up with him. And I think what would have been in his mind, and he may not have had the, the text of this yet, but in Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, Luke recorded for Christians for all time, and you can go read this for yourself. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. Luke records for us what took place the night that Jesus was about to be arrested, the night before Jesus was about to be crucified, the night before Jesus was about to lay down his life as a sacrifice for us. And amongst the many things that happened that night, one thing that is incredibly important that you hear on the lips of Jesus himself, not just Luke making this up, but recording what Jesus himself said. In Luke chapter 22, verse 20, as Jesus is breaking the bread and then giving the cup out to his disciples to take whatever we want to call it, the Last Supper, uh, he says this, as he's pouring out this cup to give to them, he, he's going to metaphorically be speaking of how his blood is going to be poured out the next day at the cross. And he says this, and hear him using the language of Jeremiah, okay? He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is saying that. The only place that phrase had appeared in the Old Testament, new covenant, was in Jeremiah 31, where all these promises had been made. And Jesus, I think, very purposefully grabs that phrase with his disciples that night, says that new covenant, that new glorious way God said he's going to deal with us as his people, that new covenant is about to start when my blood is poured out tomorrow. Like that is when it's going to begin. This new covenant is going to begin tomorrow at the cross. And I don't know that his disciples would have fully understood that, but he said it clearly. That this is not, this idea of the new covenant coming through Jesus is not just the concoction of Paul or Peter or John. It was from the words of Jesus himself. And when Jesus that next day died upon the cross, that old covenant died with him. That old covenant died with Christ, and that new covenant was enacted. That new covenant began there at the cross of Christ. That was the pivotal moment where the old went away, the old was obliterated, it was be became obsolete, and a new covenant that God had promised actually began because what was happening at the cross was of eternal, infinite significance for all of us. It wasn't just a man dying. It was God the Son who was innocent, who had no sin, who deserved no death, deserved no judgment of God, who did not walk away from his God who had held him by the hand but had actually followed him perfectly his whole life, didn't deserve the curses of the old covenant. That man allowed the sins of people like me and you and the Israelites who had preceded him, to be counted to him, to be laid upon him. And then he willingly, gladly gave his life up at the cross, suffering the wrath of God for our sins so that we might be forgiven, so that God might remember our sins no more. Not because we haven't committed them, but because Christ has suffered for them. That was what was happening at the cross as Jesus was buying our forgiveness Jesus was purchasing it by pouring out his blood. He was buying these promises of mercy toward us sinners, 
of the forgetting of our sins. That was what was happening at the cross. And the sacrifice of one man, Jesus was doing what the sacrifice of hundreds of thousands of animals before him could never do and never did. He was actually purchasing mercy and forgiveness. He was establishing a new way of God to relate to his people. And God's mercy can be granted to you. God's mercy can be granted to me if we're repentant because God's wrath has been poured out on Christ. That is the good news of the new covenant. It began right there at the cross. And Jesus was laid in a tomb. But note the present tense verbs the author's been using. Jesus mediates a better covenant, right? Like he was raised from the dead that Sunday morning, a few days afterward. He was raised from the dead by God the Father to show that that sacrifice was effective, that it actually did accomplish the the atonement that was needed for our sin. He was raised from the dead, and now he invites, Jesus invites all who will turn from their sin and place their trust in him. Jesus invites all of us to join him in this new covenant. This, this way of relating to God that's not based on our merit, that's not based on us doing the right things to keep God in our good graces, but to rest upon what Jesus has done for us at the cross. He has begun this new covenant and he invites us to be part of it. That new covenant that was promised by Jeremiah began outside Jerusalem that Friday afternoon. And so this is good news he wants them to hear from the lips of God himself. And then I think he implies that he wants them to know from the lips of Jesus that this new covenant has begun through Christ. I want to share just a couple quick points of application, sort of rapid fire to you, but depending on where you are as an individual in relation to Jesus and your participation in this new arrangement of God with his people, there's, there's different ways I think this text should hit you. First, I, I want to speak briefly to those of you who you have not placed your trust in Christ. Like you, you still have your iniquities on you. You still have your sin upon your own record. I want you today to hear from this text a, a call from Christ through me to enter into this new covenant. Enter into this new arrangement of God that is based not on your worthiness, not on your goodness, but based on the sacrifice of Jesus. The only condition that God puts upon entrance into this new covenant is that we know our bankruptcy. We know our guilt and we know that Christ died for us. And we say, I, I am not sinning anymore. Like, I'd hate that. Please forgive me. Receive me into your people, God. Receive me, please. Like, if we plead the merits of Jesus, God is glad to forgive us. He is eager to forgive us. I appreciate what Lexi read from Psalm 145, where the psalmist said, The Lord is near to all who call on him. Like, if you will turn to Jesus this moment, if you will turn to Jesus this very day, you can become part of this new covenant. You can actually know God. You can actually be part of the people of God now and forever. And God offers to you mercy for your iniquities. And he offers to put your sin out of his remembrance. So enter into this covenant if you have not. To those of you who've already entered into this covenant like I have, and like I know many of you have, you've taken God up on these promises, you've been united with Jesus by faith, I just want to remind you to revel in the reality that you get to be part of this covenant of God, that we get to be part of this covenant of God, that 
us with all our iniquities and all our mess that we have, we get to be known by God himself. Like we are known by him, not just in some, oh yeah, I tolerate them being here. We're delighted in by God. We've been received by God into his family. We'll be raised by God someday to live with him forever. Not because we deserve it, but because he's granted it to us. And so if you are part of this new covenant, I want you at least every Sunday, and I want me at least every Sunday to revel in the reality that we get to be part of this. Because if we are, it's because God did it. Like he said, I will save you. I will receive you. I will forgive you of your sin. And we ought to revel in that and never let that become old to us. Some of us need to enter into the covenant today. Some of us need to remember to revel in the reality that we're part of this covenant. But one other thing I want to say, and this is something I know we can grow in as a church, and I want to grow in as an individual, is that we have a privilege and a responsibility as people who are already part of this covenant to invite those who are outside of it to enter it. Like he says that those who are within the covenant, verse 11, we don't need to tell each other, hey, know the Lord. Like, brother, you need forgiveness. Like, we don't need to tell fellow Christians that because we already have forgiveness, right? We already have been received back by God. But guess who we do need to tell, know the Lord? Every person who is outside of this covenant, every person who has yet to take God up on his promises of forgiveness through Christ, we have a responsibility and a privilege to go to them, to go outside of the covenant and say, brother, sister, friend, whoever, co-worker, neighbor, whoever you are, you need to know the Lord. And God would be glad to receive you and know you that way. And let me tell you about the one who has made that possible. Let me tell you about Christ, the one who can actually grant you the forgiveness that you desperately need. We ought to be people who are saying to those outside of the covenant again and again, know God. The last thing, actually, that I want to say, if we need, some need to enter into the covenant, some need to revel in being part of it. Uh, Some of us need to be challenged to invite other people into it. But the last thing I, I want to say in relation to this new covenant and it's been said again and again in Hebrews, is to stay in it. Don't abandon it. Don't jump ship. Don't revert back to old ways of thinking that you approach God through law-keeping, that you secure God's favor by making sure you're at church X percentage of time, or that you give X amount of money, or that you tell X number of people about Jesus, or that you spend X number of minutes in your Bible and in prayer that day or that week. Those are not the things that gain us the favor of God. And if we revert back to that, we are doing what the author of Hebrews was trying to correct. We are going back to this old way of thinking about our dealings with God. He's saying a new way has been granted to you. A a new covenant has been established where you don't earn God's favor, you receive it by the work of Christ. And that is something we need to remember again and again and again. And when we slip back into law keeping, we need to remember the grace of God to us in Christ. There's many things that become obsolete Uh, But I feel like in some ways in our culture, we kind of just, instead of putting them permanently in the rearview mirror, we kind of come back around to them eventually, especially like things like fashion, things like that. It's like that became obsolete for a little while, and then it kind of comes back. I am not culturally savvy, but I think of stuff like mom jeans, stuff like that, or uh, vinyl records, things like that, like stuff we kind of thought was in the past, but now people are kind of resurrecting it. 
That's fine to do when you're talking about clothes, when you're talking about music, when you're talking about cultural fads, things like this. The new covenant of God through Christ is no fad, right? It will never go away. That old covenant did, and it has gone away. It was, I think you could even say it more stronger than it has becoming obsolete or growing old and ready to vanish. You really could say it was obliterated at the cross. Like it was declared by God himself to be done. And like we cannot, no matter how tempted we are, go back to that and think, oh, that's better. Like that's a a better way of relating to God, thinking I need to do this and that to secure his favor. The old covenant has died. It is gone. It is obsolete. We must not return back to it. So our church, many of you probably just refer to it as CCC. That actually stands for something. It stands... It, and it is a mouthful to say. I always have to like say it very slowly. Christ's covenant church. I have thought before, man, like it'd be nice to have a simpler name or not have to tell people in my email address there's an S in the middle. Christ's covenant church. The longer I'm a pastor here and a member here, I am thankful to God for what our church is named. That this new covenant that we're part of, it is special, it is unique, it was, it was needed, it was promised, and it's been enacted, and the person in charge of it is Jesus. Like, he's the one who bought it, he's the one who superintends it, he's the guarantor of it. Everything about this covenant finds its focus in him. It is the covenant that he has established, and we can praise God as people who are part of CCC, Christ's Covenant Church, that we are his people And he is our God. Amen. And may we never, ever, ever turn back to any other arrangement or any other hope. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us.